Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast. And in this episode, I'll be speaking with Daniel Ingram. Daniel Ingram is an emergency medicine physician and longtime Dharma practitioner. He famously exploded the Buddhist world when he declared himself to be an arhat and published the seminal text entitled Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book in 2008. He is also the main force behind the radical Dharma Overground website, which he founded together with Vincent Horn, and which specializes in a brand of unusually frank discussion of meditation practice. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Meditation, Magic, and the Fire Casino. Daniel, welcome to Deconstructing Yourself. Great to be here. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. I've been definitely very eager to have you on the show and gotten a lot of requests for you to be a guest. So you're a popular guy out there in mindfulness and awakening weirdo land. Nice. Controversy uh, <laughs> brings attention, for better that or for worse. Correct. Controversy always brings attention. And so here we are at last in uh, virtual studio land on opposite sides of the country. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to put out there to you is I understand that and let me know if I'm wrong about this, but I understand that your classic magnum opus, the center of the, of the cyclone of all controversy, mastering the core teachings of the Buddha, is being re-released in a second edition, is that correct? That's right. Almost five years ago, I started creating another version of it. When you put something out there like that, you get a lot of feedback. And I realized there were things I may not have explained well things that I left out that I assumed people would know, and I was wrong about that, things that maybe just weren't well as well addressed as they could have been. And then there were just other details I felt like adding later, as well as some autobiographical stuff, which um, people had asked for, and in the absence of that in MCTB, they just made some stuff up. Anyway, so I thought it would be good to add that section. That was actually the hardest section to write. But five years later, and a whole lot of adventures later. It is now in the hands of my publisher, and they will do a light edit, send it back to me, and then that will be it. So thank you to Eon Publications for uh, being kind enough to print the thing. Excellent. So many people take this book as gospel. You know, it's the Daniel Ingram section of the holy books, and quote this thing chapter and <laughs> verse. And I'm just curious, especially for those people, what's different about this one? I mean, you did just explain that in one way, but what can we look forward to in this book that will blow the minds of your true disciples? I don't know there's anything particularly mind-blowing in it beyond the stuff that was already there, but it does a lot more about jhanas. It does a lot more instruction about some basic concentration practices. It talks about the fire casino, which I'm all excited about these days. It has autobiographical stuff, so it talks a little bit about my journey. I realized there were some things that I only sort of remember um, that are useful dharmically, I think, for other people. They don't just apply to me, but they were useful lessons that I think would be valuable for anyone or useful points or, or things that help demystify things or bring it down to earth or humanize the story that I only remember to tell 
when I'm actually thinking about my story and otherwise I kind of forget them. So it will be helpful to have some of those in there for practitioners who may have had similar experiences or undergone similar trials or had similar questions or difficulties or whatever it is. And is this new version of the book much greater in length? Yeah, it's a bunch longer. It's what, 315,000 words or something, somewhere in there. Wow. So you've added quite a bit. Yeah. Awesome. So you brought up the idea of the fire casino. And actually, when I was polling the internet, especially Twitter, I'm always plugging Twitter on the show. I love what I jokingly call enlightened Twitter, the cohort of meditation weirdos on Twitter. Fire Casino was one of the things they really wanted to hear you talk about. So can we dive into some stuff about Fire Casino? To begin with, I think a lot of people don't even know what it is, and I certainly wouldn't expect anyone to know what it is. But beyond that, I think there's a lot of interest in that practice. So the first thing I'd like to say is thank you for your butter lamp invitation when we were uh, sitting with the group, by the way, uh, and uh, innovation. Somehow that light was really nice. Uh, so I should mention to the audience out there that we've done just a little bit of this together one evening with a nice butter lamp and a nice group of people. Yes, uh, so, Daniel invited me down to uh, Dharma the Gathering, as we uh, jokingly <laughs> called it, in North Carolina with a bunch of other meditation weirdos. And Daniel invited us to do some fire casino practice. And I, with my very unfashionable Hindu background, was able to contribute to the practice by showing everyone how to make a ghee lamp by hand. So that was a blast. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, it was nice quality light. So fire casino is a traditional practice. I do it a little bit differently than you would find it in, say, the Vasudhimaga or Vmudhimaga. The word casino, for those who are not polyglots, speakers of Pali, um, is a practice where you look at a fire. Basically, in this case, I like candle flames or lamp flames, but then it would have been a fire traditionally. And then you basically take the afterimage of the fire and you use that as an object of attention. And then you turn that into a much more refined jhanic object where you're attaining to deep states of concentration. And then you expand that out to other complicated patterns. And eventually you end up going into very strange realms and experiences and stuff gets wilder and wilder the stronger your concentration goes. And it gets more and more uh, magical and as your jhanic factors get stronger and your concentration powers up. And so what I really like about the fire casino is that most people are surprisingly good at it. We like looking at things. We're very visually oriented. And it gives really nice feedback to how your concentration is because the afterimage and the colors you'll then see or dots or circles or lines or patterns or whatever it starts becoming will give you feedback on how your concentration is. And uh, the stronger they get, basically, the stronger your concentration is. So it's like an immediate feedback loop. And most people in relatively small amounts of meditation time in the grand scheme of things can get into some pretty interesting territory relatively rapidly. And so I really appreciate this ancient practice as an object. And I think it's fun dusting off these old things that ancient, very wise, accomplished practitioners figured out and noticing, hey, wait, there was a reason they spent all this valuable ink and paper on writing these things down, because um, they're really, really useful and powerful. So on the face of it, the practice sounds like a concentration practice. You're going to look at the candle and then close your eyes and look at the afterimage and just try to concentrate on it. And of course, it does build concentration. But how would you describe the further benefits 
What are some of the things one can expect to learn or, dare we say, achieve by working with fire casino practice? Yeah, so other than refined states of concentration, which in and of themselves are remarkable, you can take this to places of insights by learning to see the flickering patterns and the shifting nature of the thing and the patterns shifting on their own and changing and oscillating and vibrating and eventually flickering and disappearing and reappearing. You can start to notice the true nature of sensate experience, but with colorful objects, as your attention becomes more and more immersed in the realms of color and light, the pain of one's body, of emotions, of issues, of problems, is relatively rapidly left behind. And what one finds in the realms of joyous color and light is an exquisitely fascinating, very easy to concentrate on, endlessly interesting, magical universe of entities, of archetypal images, of sacred geometry, of vast luminous patterns. It enters a lot of the territory that people are hoping to get into sometimes with the entheogens, but with a vastly higher degree of control, though obviously it's more work, but has the advantage of being legal and uh, <laughs> in most places. And the magical journeys and adventures that one can start to have there in archetypal and symbolic realms and mythic realms can show you sides of yourself and sides of reality that otherwise are very, very hard to access, but it can show them to you, excuse me, with exquisite clarity that is as real as the best CGI, as real as your most vivid dreams, and sometimes feels more real than any of that. And in that realm, if you get your concentration strong enough, which for me takes, you know, 150 hours or something over 10 days, 12 days, 15 days, something like that, you can start to get into realms that are I call the realm of malleability or what the text would call mind-made malleable and wieldly, where you can craft your reality basically however you want it to be. So for you magical practitioners in the group, if you want to trace the lines of the pentagram in the air and see them hanging there and glowing, dripping, you know, luminous, syrupy, blue fire, there they are. If you want to travel out of body, off you go. If you want to visualize or interact with a tantric deity to the level that you never thought you could possibly visualize before, and you're reading some old Tibetan book with these remarkable descriptions of levels of intricacy of uh, visual and uh, auditory and a color detail that you never could have imagined, suddenly all that is well within your grasp and seems strange that you couldn't do it before. And just as strange when you leave those realms and the concentration falls off that you now can't do it again, because <laughs> it does tend to fade uh, if you... Uh, cut the concentration power, go off retreat, you know, you may have aspects of it, but probably not the full thing. So those are the selling points for the realms of deep visualized concentration that can come from the casinos. Well, let's dig in there just a tiny bit. What I understand you to be saying is just as one can penetrate a body sensation and noticing it deconstructing into waveforms and eventually into nirvana, one could do the same thing with these visual after images or mental images in the mind, correct? That's one possible use. True. So from an insight point of view, you can create a concentration object and then you can see its true nature. It's easy if you tune the mind to the vibrating, scintillating, shimmering, shifting, moving, flowing, twisting, spinning qualities of whatever images you create to uh, use them as insight objects. And the fusion of shamatha and vipassana is sort of routinely talked about in the Tibetan traditions. You don't find it as much to practice these days, except in some places in Sri Lanka mostly, or a few you know places like Pa'alk, where they'll do concentration practice and then use it as a basis for insight. 
But I don't see a whole lot of people in the Theravada, unfortunately, dusting off the old casinos and taking them to this kind of place, which is too bad because it's an outrageously good time. <laughs> utterly fascinating. Um, and from a pure recreational point of view, like we're not, here's a taboo topic, fun with meditation. Like, are we supposed to do that in the Theravada? I don't know. But from a purely recreational point of view, the amount of outrageously fun, ridiculously interesting, compelling experiences you can get yourself into, pretty much your imagination's the limit, you know, and most people's imaginations can do remarkable things. So um, yes. imagine having that writ large as your vibrant, ultra intense living experience. And, you know, there you go. There you go. So I can also see the archetypal aspect of this being very insight rich in terms of one's own psychology, or let's say psychology in general. Are you also uh, noticing some awakening components there? Yes. So there's nothing quite like sitting there staring at like the tantric image of a white Vajrasattva and suddenly having its intelligence recognize that it is the innate cognizant intelligent of space and the same intelligence, sorry, that is intrinsic within you and have that all synchronized, collapse into each other, disappear and then reappear to reset your brain in beautiful and wondrous ways and produce deep insights. So that's point number one in terms of, say, getting a fruition, as we would call it in technical language, off of a casino object secondarily arising then with the sense that, wait a second, I no longer seem to be an ordinary person, but instead I seem to be wrapped in the semblance of some sort of a deity with some of their qualities that I've been cultivating with my mind. That in and of itself is powerfully transformative and paradigm changing. I should also mention that if you're going to go far enough into the realms of magic powers, deities and all that, it becomes harder and harder to have an ordinary scientific materialistic paradigm as your working paradigm. So anybody who really likes that paradigm is sort of your go-to default for your sure reality is, I would avoid these practices because they will likely change it. There's nothing like suddenly standing in the presence of some deity that is radiating vast amounts of power beyond anything you could have possibly comprehended to put some weird mortal cowering fear into you of (laughs) what might be out there and how outrageously teeny and insignificant you may be in comparison to it. Furthermore, there are fascinating things you can do, like take this if you want to bask in the vast luminosity of space and have that illuminate all aspects of your experience. The realms of powerful concentration can do that kind of thing. So it becomes an outrageously flexible tool once you get up there and take the time to get up there and do a practice that's likely to get you up there to explore all kinds of things that initially would seem ridiculous, mythological. Oh, some old dead dude or dudette did that in some book long ago you know, or whatever, but we don't do that today. No, people can do this today. And are you basically exploring this under your own steam, or are you working with someone as a teacher? For better or for worse, it's been a long time since I had a formal teacher beyond the fascinating and extremely useful support of my peers and co-adventurers and the community that I'm a part of, which is a remarkable set of teachers or teacher with some big capital T in and of itself, and then just the simple practices themselves will teach you a lot. So, but do I have a formal teacher? Uh, no, it's been quite a long time, for better or for worse, again. Interesting. Because so. I actually haven't even heard of someone teaching this currently anywhere in America, anyway. As far as I know, you're the only uh, proponent of it. So that's just interesting in and of itself. Another groundbreaking moment from Daniel Ingram. <laughs> So let's back up just a minute. 
as some people might know, if they know me or have been listening to this podcast, I'm deeply entrenched, just to be paradoxical, in the ideas of meta-rationality. The joke is, of course, to not be entrenched in any ideas in meta-rationality. <laughs> so I tend to not try to land too firmly or permanently in any one worldview. However, for the most part, in an average day, I'm spending most of my time in the materialistic scientific paradigm, just because that tends to be pretty useful. Me too. I work as a doctor, so. Yeah, you're, am I correct, you're an emergency room doc? Yep. How long have you been doing that? Uh, I've been out of residency now a little over 11 years. A situation, a work situation that pretty much requires a lot of uh, just straight up chemistry and science and materialistic worldview. So it's not like you're spending, you know, your weeks tripping on acid or hanging out in a cabin or a cave in the Himalayas. No. Right. So it's just interesting how this work you're doing with the fire casino is maybe not challenging, but providing another worldview just by its very nature. So Daniel, what's the ontological status of these deities you're seeing in your fire casino practice? Well, it's interesting. So I remember one of your discussions somewhere, you were talking about like a matrix-like view, like maybe we're all in a matrix or a simulation. So that's an interesting one. I think clearly a product of our times, though I have a hard time believing that my silicon computer in front of me is conscious. I have absolutely no way to prove that it isn't. So it's just my biases based on little real data. We also have no way of knowing that we're not running on a substrate. Right? Sure. That we're right. just not a simulation somewhere. So it's hard to ever land on what's deep reality. But what's more interesting to me than that is how much that mindset would be a product of our times, where in previous times, bereft of such things as computers, they would have assumed that anything that was conscious was likely a mind or a brain or a being or a something to some degree. And consequently, you know, theories like we're all the dream of Vishnu or something along those lines actually seem more plausible to me at this point than we are in some computer simulation. Though, again, it's, uh, they're unfalsifiable and I'm purely revealing my own biases based on strange practices. So, yeah, and there's no way to prove that might not be the case as well, that we might That's not true. all be dreams in some vast, incredibly powerful, intricate, rich, multifaceted, multidimensional brain. And if you ever have a joint powers experience with anyone, so, for example, if you say, draw something in the air with her finger again, shout out to the magicians in the crowd, and somebody else can see it, what does that mean? Or they can tell you what color it is, or they can tell you what it is that you drew. What does that say about the nature of consciousness, about the nature of collective experience? What mechanisms can we reasonably propose that explain that? I mean, there are numerous reports of, you know, sort of mass visions and sightings and delusions or something where a whole lot of people have seen things. There's an example from Spain and there's some others where yes. you have to be positing some either extremely intricate layers of communication between people's brains or that the whole fabric of thing might be the holodeck of some brain or holodeck or something. Yeah, as long as we come back to the next generation, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, there you go. So... um <laughs> Again, these practices are very uh, paradigm-shaking sometimes because these experiences can feel as real, as intimate as any interactions one's ever had in one's life. So what is it that's doing that? Again, I would caution anybody going into these things to think you will go into them and keep your view of reality intact. 
unless it's one that's already quite magical and mystical and contains some potent theological elements. Yeah, you know, having spent a lot of time, as I said, doing Hindu tantrism practices, particularly in India, you know, there's a large number of things I've experienced that I just don't talk to people about because uh, they Do just it. don't they just don't fit anybody's paradigm. You know, give us some uh, examples. Just imagine every kind of spiritual magical experience that people talk about. You know, it's yeah. they tend to be quite common for some reason in India, and there's lots of speculation as to why that might be. But one of the permanent effects is just that I never land on a particular dedicated, solid worldview for very long because it's just too easy to see examples of something that's the opposite of that or doesn't fit into that. For me, what comes up as an interesting feature is something you just pointed at, which is the sense of something feeling real. You know, the sense of an experience feeling genuine or feeling real. Yeah. And to me, that's the crux right there of everything, right? That's an interesting experience to deconstruct. To deconstruct is interesting, but to acknowledge the realness and the fact that even as much as you deconstruct it, anything that feels that real will have effects as if it is that real on layers of you and levels of you that you may try to rationalize away, but your emotional body, some of your responses, your energy systems, your brain chemicals will respond to things that feel real as if they are real. You bet. It affects your psychology in exactly the same way as if it is genuinely real, in fact, maybe yeah. more so. And yet, what I think is so interesting is, number one, that people put so much stock in the feeling of being real or the opposite feelings when something feels like it's not real. Like a dream or totally surreal or unreal or unbelievable or, yeah. Exactly. Um, yep. And yet, I'm right with you. To me, the important point is not the ontological status of the thing, but how much it affected you, how much it changed your brain chemistry, how much you found some new awakening there or learned something new. At least what I hear you saying is, regardless of your worldview, these things are going to affect you powerfully, even if, you know, footnote number 27, it's some kind of placebo or whatever. Who cares? Right. It's I'm a still, pragmatist. I don't, yes. I'm less interested in ontology than causality. Me too. Okay, so tell us about some interesting fire casino experiences. Well, so some of the simple ones, which I had on my second retreat when I was doing this with two friends of mine in Scotland two years ago. This, this was like 12 days in Scotland or something? 12 like that. days, yeah. Um, in a tower in Scotland for my birthday. It wasn't Bullskine, was it? February. What? It wasn't what? Bullskine. We were at a place called the Toria Bar, as they would call it, or the Tower of Halbar, as we would say. <laughs> nice. I'm referring to Alistair Crowley's uh, mansion in Scotland. Yeah, no, this is just an old 16th century defensive tower that we rented, CelticCastleRental.com or something. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, so it was a good time, though, if you're, you know, that kind of geek. So some of the interesting experiences, weirdly enough, the most profound of them all was one of the most simple. I drew something in the air that I could see and my friend could see it, too and could tell me what color it was and what I had drawn, still seeing it after I had drawn it. Wow. Uh, that changed my understanding of the collective nature of experience permanently, I think. 
And that was what I was looking for. That was actually the whole point of that retreat. I also, you know, had the fire goddess tell me to become a king of fire um, <laughs> in a harsh, commanding voice. And at one point flew out of my body and was sitting in the fire with my legs wrapped around the fire as if I was like, you know, sitting cross-legged around it or in it or something and other things like that. Good times. Um, But some of the most interesting things about this, though, are teaching it to other people and realizing that, wow, they can do this stuff. You can teach people to do this stuff. And if they just put in the time and have some sort of discipline, it's a fascinating object and it leads to strong concentration, real changes in perception. and, And that's a good time. I don't think anyone would fault you for doing such stuff since you are already, as we all know, famously an arhat. So you've got a strong level of awakening, let's say, and so doing this kind of work is in a way traditional. What about for people who don't have a strong level of awakening or even any level of awakening? I could see someone saying, hey, this is a big distraction from actually you know, finding some emptiness. Yes and no. So if you take your typical Westerner and put them on a retreat, they spend a ridiculous amount of time perseverating about their issues, their psychology, their back pain, their knee pain, their boss, their mom, their partner, their whatever. Sounds like a retreat to me. Yeah, and precious little time doing anything that I would really consider really on track. So in comparison to that, a candle flame object is fascinating. People rapidly get entranced by the colors and they actually develop strong concentration skills and can develop real deep, um, profound, clear, blissful, peaceful states of mind in which the hindrances are suppressed. So given the standard alternative, which is neurotic spinning on their own crap, I would take the fire casino. And I think it's a hard argument to make that that wouldn't be cultivating vastly more useful things. So that's point number one. Point number two is learning shamatha is very traditional and an extraordinarily important part of Buddhist meditation practice. It hasn't been translated into the West in quite the same way, and that has to do with some of the history of the thing. But the Buddha spent a lot of time studying jhanas, and while he finally found them wanting, it's largely inconceivable that his level of concentration that cut through to his awakening wasn't extremely well supported by the depths of meditative skill that he had learned in those practices. And consequently, the Buddhist texts go on and on about saying, you know, you develop, you know, the eight jhanas up to neither perception nor yet non-perception come out and turn your mind to wisdom. And then using that extremely strong, steady, clear mind that has been able to strip itself so far down that body disappears, consciousness disappears, nothingness disappears, and then you come out, that is a mind that is strong, wieldly, powerful, clear, able to cut through delusion and able to see things with an extremely high degree of equanimity, clarity, tranquility, rapture, and that turned to investigation with some energy, and suddenly you've got all the factors of awakening converging on something awesome. So while it is true that I trained in a Mahasi tradition and came up doing noting, and that was, I think, my strength, I was way better in my early days at shredding reality into scattering bits of edgy confetti and, you know, shredding every single thing that I thought of as me down with lightning fast mindfulness, you know, and I luckily had a tolerance for the amazing amounts of pain and angst that that can cause you. <laughs> um, uh, Sounds like a good time to said, me. That said, that's not everybody's cup of tea. And uh, yes. there are some people who I think definitely should lead through strength. And if they have some natural genic abilities, then learning how to do those well, to take them to high places, to come out of them in such a space that now 
why not just turn to yourself and tear it down? Because you've already made your whole body disappear. You've already learned all those skills. You've already seen everything flux and shift to some high degree anyway by the time you get there. So, you know, it's an easy, quiet thing to then just, boom, take yourself out. Now, is this something you're considering teaching to people at any time in the future? Yeah, so I've led just a very few retreats in my life and all been solo, single person practicing for what I consider some reasonable period of time, which has generally been some number of weeks or months, usually a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. And there was another doctor who came to me on retreat and wanted to learn insight practice. And a few weeks in, crashed into some dark night stuff very hard. And insight practices no longer seemed the right way to go. And so I said, okay, you got another two weeks. You're here for five weeks. You got some time. Let's just stop this whole insight thing and teach you some other skills. Switch to candle flame. Soon enough, he was soaring out over, you know, vast landscapes and having all these remarkable experiences and had calmed down and wasn't about to flee out of the cabin where he was practicing his <laughs> little hut, or the big hut, I should say. It's a pretty big hut. And um, instead had a clear, wonderful, easy state of mind that when it was thus turned insight was extremely effective. And so I actually found that quite a useful strategy. We're endlessly strategizing our favorite tactics for dealing with what we call the dark night or the dukanyanas, the knowledges of suffering, dissolution, fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance and reobservation that can come before equanimity and stages of awakening. And uh, concentrate your ass off, as Kenneth Folk might say, is definitely one of them. So, um, and this is a fun way to concentrate your ass off. Tip of the hat to Kenneth. I guess. Yeah. So one of the things you were talking about down in uh, North Carolina at Dharma the Gathering was about walking the crooked line between madness and meditation. And it sounds like we're kind of approaching that territory here where those two states begin to intermingle in certain ways. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so as an emergency medicine physician, I get to see a lot of real psychosis, you know, real bipolar disorder with, you know, psychotic symptoms, real mania, the real thing. So I get to see people and what that looks like. It's dysphoric with the exception of some of the manic stuff. It's usually very scary, very disturbing, disorienting, confusing, stressful for the people who are experiencing it. It's very rare to hear, say, pleasant voices telling you you're a wonderful person and you should go start a public library. Instead, they tend to be horrible voices saying horrible things or at least just murmuring or something, you know, neutral, but very rarely pleasant. And while it's not true that all of the experiences you can have when you get your concentration strong are necessarily pleasant and or not scary, they tend to have some sense of majesty or profundity to them that is powerful and compelling. Also, while it is definitely true that people can run into trouble with deep concentration, and I should put a strong warning here, if you're going to do this, do it with a teacher and or a group of people who knows this territory and knows what's going on and knows how to get help if you run into trouble, because it is true that occasionally people in strong concentration territory will have real psychiatric breaks and problems. So that's a strong warning I should put out there. And you should look up the work of Dr. Willoughby Britton and Jared Lindahl. That said, this stuff can get you into territory that some might think, oh, this is madness. This is crazy. And yet it doesn't cause dysfunction. It doesn't cause distress. It causes insights. It causes wisdom. It can cause increased appreciation of life and increased understanding of ourselves in a good way and increased appreciation of the wondrous aspects of life and unsticking 
from stuck paradigms and reveal much that was previously hidden about ourselves, our world, our minds, what is possible, and all of that. It's interesting that when we, through a Buddhist Western lens, read the old texts, you know, all the stories of the, the ghosts and the demons and the tree spirits and the nagas and all this stuff are so rapidly and easily dismissed as, oh, that was just a bunch of strange mythical people. And by the way, these few sutras that actually talk about insight practice, right, because there's not that many of them, right, whereas there's tons of stuff that talks about magical animistic sounding worlds, you know, we sort of dismiss all that. And yet, if you get your concentration strong enough, you can live in a world that's magical and contains other entities and creatures and stuff and be fine, be sane, be functional, be a good citizen, be a good member of your family or community, and even be perhaps enhanced in those regards in your appreciation of the sacredness of nature or the sacredness of your mind or the profound interdependence of us all or the implications of thinking one harsh thought from a magical point of view and the increase in morality that can come from understanding that every single resonance of everything in the universe resonates out to everything else somehow, and that it all really is interconnected in some strange and mystical and magical way, um, that can really increase our sense of moral urgency to even have our internal experience be something ethical and skillful and useful. Yeah, so I would recommend wandering out into those realms with proper supports and if you already have a good foundation of ego strength in the classical psychological sense, meaning that you don't take yourself too seriously and you can laugh at yourself and you have a good foundation in ethics and morality and will keep the reins on any strange impulses that might uh, suddenly arise and be disorienting. Pretty much the same set of warnings and guidelines that someone would give for psychedelic use. Yeah, Except the weird thing about this is it might not stop. Well, just like psychedelics might not stop, you can have flashbacks. But the weird thing about this is if you get up there, it can take longer to come down than it might off of even some strong acid trip, which might be 12 hours or something. You know, I guess yeah. ibogaine could be 36. Shinzen Young has a great story about coming back from very long retreat. He was in grad school and for something like six months as he was walking around, you know, just doing his studying and going to class, he was seeing enormous insects, perfectly lifelike, perfectly detailed. Nice. But like six foot tall grasshoppers and stuff. Nice. Uh, in 3D, moving, perfectly mm -hmm. articulated, everything all around him the whole time. Yeah. And as freaky as that was, and, and it was freaky uh <laughs> you know he was having a hard time with it i think at first but he realized the thing to do was to just stay with it and concentrate on it and have equanimity and work with it and it ended up being apparently tremendously deepening for his awakening to work with that material yeah so i mean the idea that it could go on for six months solid while you're you know right. just doing normal everyday activities is not unheard of for sure yeah. And then it makes it way more likely that strange, spontaneous things you weren't expecting later in the realms of powers, territory, or whatever will show up. Definitely seems to increase synchronicities and other abilities and make things arise um, that you weren't expecting. Yeah. So the cities start uh, making themselves known. Yeah. And for you, is that mainly synchronicities or what are you noticing? Well, so I certainly notice more synchronicities, um, but then, you know, you can get into other strange things. 
So energetic experiences, intuitive experiences, even visionary experiences, momentary bursts and things, uh, the occasional voice or whatever telling me something useful or asking me some useful question, which again, it's interesting to differentiate these things from classical schizophrenia experiences. Most people are not having the voices, you know, ask them really profound questions about the nature of their existence or something that seem of great import and seem worth pondering or the nature of one's, you know, life. So those kinds of things or, you know, inspirational things that come or even celestial music. So sometimes like the sense of unbelievably rich, powerful, beautiful music can arise all kinds of experiences you wouldn't necessarily have sent, or the sense of a felt presence of a place, or the sense of understanding something about someone who's looking at you and talking to you that's deeper than what they're saying and what you would have likely picked up otherwise. There are all kinds of things that can open. And the problem with these things is they're unpredictable, right? So people who want to study these things, good luck, because uh, it's hard to figure out how to get them to be reproducible. That doesn't mean they don't occur, right? So it's not like I have could say, okay, let's have 10, you know, sudden profound questions arise from a deity in the next two hours. And if you can't do that or something, I don't, you know, I can't, can't have anything like that happen that I know of, but that doesn't invalidate the fact that these things do arise. I just am not quite sure how you'd study strange, unexpected, spontaneous things like that. They seem to be non-volitional, right? They just happen when they happen, and you can't ever tell when it's going to happen. Right. And then there are volitional things you can do, too. I mean, it's not like you can't gain control of some of this stuff. So you can, but there's also the stuff that you were not expecting at all and just surprised you. And what do you think this points to in terms of the collective, if we just to use Jungian terms, collective unconscious, or where do you go with this? Yeah, so it becomes harder and harder to not believe in something like that, something that fulfills that kind of mechanism, something. Is it the ether? Is it the divine mind? Is it Godhead? Is it a machine? Is it, I don't know. I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you lots of effects that it seems to produce that are hard to explain by some more linear scientific materialist way that, you know, you go, how in the world, really? How could I have known that? Like, how in the world did I know that deer was going to be around that corner, but all of a sudden my foot was breaking on the pedal and then I rounded the corner and there was the deer. You know, yeah. I, I couldn't see the deer. There's, there's no way I could have known that, you know, that kind of thing. Again, I don't know what the mechanism is. I couldn't tell you, but there has to be something. As a scientist, there's got to be something. There has to be some mechanism. You can call it what you like. You know, like if you have experiences of past lives, they tend to be ridiculously loaded with meaning. They yes. tend to be profoundly explanatory. They tend to show you and highlight you aspects of yourself that you're like, oh yeah, that, that totally seems to have some karmic resonance to my current situation. They tend to just be dripping with meaning and a sense of import and profundity. So you can say, oh, maybe there's no rebirth and it's all ridiculous and then how could consciousness transmigrate? Well, we have no idea what consciousness is or whatever. So that said, those experiences, regardless of whether or not they're true, tend to be some of the more profound psychologically explanatory experiences you're likely to ever have in terms of a sense of karma and karmic resonance and karmic trajectory and um, causality. That's right. And that goes back to the pragmatic aspect of this, where right. it's a little bit boring to try to investigate whether it's really a past life or not, since who can prove anything about that? Nobody. But it's very fascinating to look at the actual effect it has on your own psychology to get these insights, to get that deep wisdom, to get the sort of pure drop of wisdom from that past life, in quotes. 
Yeah. That's the important part. Mm-hmm. And it seems like people either dismiss it in a scientific materialist way, which, you know, I understand completely why they do, do that, too. as do you. Mm-hmm. But it's equally a waste, in my mind, to get super involved in trying to prove that past lives are real. Well, I would agree. That's a pretty tricky thing to do. Tricky, and who cares? Right. You know, it's about whether that insight is actually helping you go deeper, helping you awaken, helping you love better. Be kind. Yeah, live well now. So what's the cutting edge for you right now, Daniel? What are you working on? What am I working on these days? Trying to figure out how to live skillfully, Mm -hmm. how to balance helping people and taking care of this aging body trying to figure out how much work is too much, how much service to others is too much. There's lines there that, you know, past a certain point, you know, I find I'm just hurting myself. Yeah. It's it's taking a toll that may be unskillful on this body. One of the temptations, first off, as a physician is to give a lot. So we tend to be rescuers. We tend to be poor patients. We tend to push ourselves hard. It's part of the pathology of my chosen career path. And that sort of Culture is pervasive, right? So tend to be uh, workaholicish or abjectly workaholic. So that's problem number one. Problem number two that can compound that is coming from a tradition where service to others, benefiting all beings, you know, going out of your way to help relieve suffering is an explicit part of the Buddhist tradition, right? And the Bodhisattva path, if you want to go there or just even, you know, Theravada, you know, the gift of life is only excelled by the gift of the Dharma. And so I try to give both. And the problem is that a mind and body like this, they're still in pretty good shape and a mind that's, I would say, unusually good shape. It's easy to take that for granted and push it. And then the problem is you can end up pushing it out past where any normal person would have likely pushed themselves. Although certainly plenty of normal physicians, because it's part of the pathology of the profession. So trying to figure out how in the world to do that in a wise way, what's um, a reasonable balance. You know, there is a tremendous need in this world for both Dharma and medical care. There's endless ERs that are looking for people to help them. There's endless patients that come to us needing care and who are suffering and who need help. And yet trying to figure out how in the world I can avoid breaking this Daniel is a real question. I don't mean that in some martyristic sense, but just as a point of admitting my own stupidity sometimes and not always understanding clearly what's skillful in that regard. And do you find that the practices you're doing these days are helping you to find this balance? A yes and no. So here's the weird thing. So I can spend, you know, half an hour, an hour, two hours in really, really deep, genre or some outrageously clear space or just have the blessings of a well-trained mind when walking around and doing the work I do or having the blessings of being trained uh, by skillful people to notice the suffering of others and be able to delight in helping to relieve that suffering in whatever small or large way I can within the capacities of my art and the capabilities of modern medicine. And so those things help me on the one hand to sustain a pace of work and a pace of engagement and a pace of excitement about helping people and doing good in the world that is, I would say, possibly way too much. And on the other hand, you could easily say, no, those are enabling you to just totally do something stupid, you idiot. Like, just because you can doesn't mean it's a good idea. 
So it's a strange thing because the jhana can be outrageously recharging, rejuvenating the simple state of mind that is clear and present and inspired by helping suffering or inspired by compassion can be compelling, right? It's very easy for me to look at my life and health, which are in general very good and certainly vastly better than most people who come to an ER, right? They're obviously having some health problem and think, ah, I'm doing better than they are. I should help them and give back. Actually, I'm very much a leftist politically, so that sort of paradigm also fits my values of those of us who can help should, and those of us who need help should get it. Redistribution of help. Yeah, redistribution of help. And yet, I'm not always sure that I'm that good at trying to find where that balance is. It's easy to sometimes, I think, take advantage of the skills that people were kind enough to teach me to push the staniel to places that maybe it shouldn't have gone that far. Maybe that was just stupid and uncompassionate on this end. Maybe that's just foolish. So that's, I would think of as the cutting edge of my practice these days. And are you using your, I guess I'm just going to use the word magical, jhanic practices as an inquiry vehicle to help with these issues? Yes. Do you go in there and ask these questions? I do. And I don't always get good, clear answers is the problem. Yeah. It's a moving target. It's a moving target. How does that work? How do you do that? Yeah, so divination is interesting. So I actually use some, you know, sort of more jhanic divination methods where the classic magical pattern is to get up into some high state, right? So, you know, if you can get to like fourth jhana and eighth jhana and then come out and then just put an intention out there, like, may I gain some clear insight into how to resolve this problem and see what answers come. So that's one way. And then I do very traditional magical things sometimes as well, which weirdly enough, I can sometimes find just as profound. Like, you know, just I've got an app on my phone with the witch's tarot deck. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just draw a card for the day and say, hey, what do I need to know? It's freakishly prescient. I don't mean to sound like a lunatic by thinking that the app on my phone knows more than me sometimes, but sometimes it seems to. Um, By all means, please sound like a lunatic. (laughs) And then I've got an I Ching app as well that provides strangely good advice. So two ordinary magical means that I find helpful. Yeah, and then life provides interesting feedback, curious synchronicities and bizarre coincidences and messages. Sometimes patients will just say something like, you know, you look like you really should get more sleep. You know, when they're like the moments before we're like in the depths of their own misery and everything. And suddenly they just like look at me as if they know something that I should and don't. <laughs> so... Anyway, so I thank them for their wisdom. Speaking of the magical end of this, which seems to be the theme so far in this episode, I actually had the privilege of and the pleasure of um, seeing your collection of magical items. Yeah. Was down in the North Carolina. <laughs> so just full disclosure, Daniel has a bag of magical wands and so on. Yeah, yeah. Did You got to see me in my wizarding onesie. I did, yes, even the even the wizarding onesie, yes. <laughs> How could I have forgotten? Anything you want to enlighten the listeners with about that? So it's interesting. It's very easy to get all scientific materialistic and forget that things have meaning and symbolic power, right? So if you're handling a wand in your hand that is pure white and has pretty designs carved on it and beautiful white stones you feel and the world feels and your hand feels and everything feels different than if you're holding a black wand with strange, sinister-appearing characters that, you know, has disturbing carvings on it or symbols on it. 
what you do with that in your hand, how you feel. It's like putting on different clothing. You feel different. It changes things. So even if you believe it doesn't have effects, uh, let me tell you, it does, because there's vast parts of our brains that are symbolic, archetypal, profoundly influenced by symbol and messaging, as the advertising people know all too well. The great magic of capitalism draws on this every single day, hundreds of millions of times as advertisements stream out across the web and media to people, right? They know that symbols have power to alter behavior and change consciousness and paradigms and what we do. And if we understand this, we can skillfully look at our own symbolism, what resonates with us, what has meaning for us. And by using that as our own advertising, conditioning, or whatever, we can change our brains and our world and access parts of ourselves that we might not otherwise have, the parts of our brains that respond to that, that we can try to pretend aren't there. But let me tell you, they are. So the way you're describing this, the wands, which, you know, just for the listener, are for all intents and purposes, look like a Harry Potter wand or with nice carvings and so on, different sorts of woods, as Daniel was describing. Yeah. You're saying that these are essentially symbols that have a strong symbolic valence and that you can leverage that to make brain change happen. I'm saying you can definitely look at them that way. And what other way do you tend to look at them? So then there's the way that I see them when I sort of look at the shimmering colors in the air around them, when I look at what patterns come off them, when I hold them in my hand and see what energies arise and what they seem to call to do, what their resonant colors are, what the pattern of magic streaming off of their ends looks like and what it seems to want to do. And that again, sounds crazy unless you've actually done enough of this practice and you go, oh, no, that's makes sense to me, you know, and that's the other way of looking at them, which past a certain point, you can't kind of not see, right? You can try to pretend you're not seeing it or feeling it or getting a sense of it, but then there it is. And that's what you're feeling and experiencing. That's causal, regardless of what, you know, reality you give it or how you react to that or relate to it. But the experiences are the experiences and experiences are causal. And so past a certain point, you can't not look at magical things in a magical way. And then past a certain point, you can't not look at everything in some kind of magical way. If you do enough of this training, right? Everything seems to have symbolic import. Everything has meaning. Everything has resonances and then colors and then energies and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, if you go into this territory, realize that you can end up with some uh, divergent paradigms from the world around you. And, and hopefully you will have sense to keep those in some sort of reasonable, skillful uh, bounds. Yeah, be able to uh, handle them with care and skill. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting how every tradition that I've ever run into that works with high concentration also works with these magical powers. I've always sort of thought from one viewpoint, well, you know, these cultures and traditions, that's where they're coming from. But you could certainly turn it on its head and say, well, when you work with high concentration, this is what you end up seeing. That's what you're going to get. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty much guaranteed. I don't know how you could go into those realms and not start running into this stuff. It would only be by the most unusually profound and skillful of resolutions that you could somehow keep the barriers up. Um, and even then... Uh, you know, that in of itself, for me, from my point of view, would be profoundly powerful magic. <laughs> well, there's a whole bunch of stuff arising for me right now. One, I think it's interesting how your own path seems to have recreated the historical unfolding of the three yanas of Buddhism, right? You started yeah. out with Theravada and you've ended up in these hyper-magical realms that one would associate with Vajrayana. 
So one question I have is, do you see or have you seen something that goes more in the direction of Dzogchen? Sort of the post-magical. So the Dzogchen perspective, first of all, I actually want to slightly backtrack because wasn't it you who was talking about like at Nalanda, like how once the, all these people had gotten awakened, like they were going to be sitting around bored with nothing else to do and they're just going to have to go into magic because <laughs> otherwise they'd just like, what else are you going to do as a monk, you know? That, I that mean, was me, in fact, saying that, yes. <laughs> it's a, a wise insight. So, uh, <laughs> right. I was picturing, you know, these um, people who probably entered a monastic university like that at 13 and, and sure. all, you know, practicing with all these adepts. Certainly, by the time they're 30, they've mastered oh, yeah. all these techniques for right. sure, right? And yeah. so, what do you do for the rest of your life? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you start trying out other stuff, right? Daniel has a great memory. I was comparing Dharma the Gathering in a very uh, jovial way to, <laughs> to, to, you know, uh, what do you do after all this stuff kind of meeting? Yeah. And, the realms of high concentration are definitely fascinating in that way. But Dzogchen, so Dzogchen, you can't get around Dzogchen-y like perspectives past a certain point, right? Everything sort of becomes Dzogchen from a certain point of view or the Tao or like everything just being as it is, right? So yeah, that it certainly seems to be the far end of whatever spectrum. Yeah. So when you lock in a paradigm where the universe is, is your sense world in some way, right? So where all thoughts are explicitly an experience that's a part of transient space and where all intentions are immediately an experience that are a part of transient space and when all sense doors are integrated into one open, fluxing, changing, you know, luminous space. And when that is your paradigm and you've trained well enough such that now that's it, right? So there's nothing other than all the sense doors immediately doing what they do. Right, that can't be other than Dzogchen, right? There's, yeah. that's it. When the whole thing is the whole thing, and it always is the whole thing, and intrinsically is the answer, as much as anything's an answer to the immediate question of, you know, what is this, or who am I, or what's going on, and the whole thing immediately, intrinsically, at all times, answers its own question, or answers those existential questions, then that paradigm is Dzogchen, right? It rigpa, you know, pick your favorite fancy Tibetan word, you know, some <laughs> person who's a terminological stickler is freaking out right now. But but the point remains, right? So the what they're pointing to as a living felt thing remains. You can't get around it. But right. within that, within sort of everything being Zogchen, anything goes. And so then the question is, what's the most skillful thing you can do? It's not like the relative questions don't remain. And so a concentrated mind is generally vastly more pleasant and seemingly skillful and useful and healthy than an unconcentrated mind. A clear mind is better than an unclear mind. A mind that is not disturbed by anger and you know, jealousy is a mind that's vastly more pleasant than a greedy, hateful, deluded mind. But the rest is gravy and fun and playable and enjoyable and something you can experiment with and say, hey, well, can we do this? Can we do that? What if we do this? What if we do that? What about all these old things that dead people were writing about and even modern people describe? Are those worth exploring? And the answer is probably yeah. So not that you have to, right? I mean, some people, uh, when they attain to you know levels of clear realization, this, the simple elegance and and beauty of just naturally what's happening is satisfying to them, and understandably so. And they go, I have no interest in the rest of it. This is just fine. And then for whatever karmic conditioning or reasoning or whatever you want to put onto it, some of us 
are called to realms of magic and mystery and the stranger end of the spectrum. I'm uh, reminded of the story of Sri Ramakrishna, the 19th century Hindu saint who, you know, an adept who learned many different paths of awakening. He had started out as a uh, village priest worshiping Kali and actually had his first realization that way. Nice. But studied with, I believe the number is like 36 different teachers to learn these different paths of awakening and wow. said to have mastered them all. But the most famous one was, because it's the most dichotomous, was he learned Advaita Vedanta from a guy named Totapuri. And Totapuri is a typical Advaita guy who totally ridicules all religion, totally ridicules any kind of ritual. All of that's just bullshit. Kali is stupid. You know, shut up. Just see the clear, right? And uh, so Ramakrishna is an adept at this point. He's very good at this stuff. And Totapuri is able to awaken him very, very quickly or help him to awakening to this, what we would call Dzogchen type view. Nice. You know, Ramakrishna appreciates it, but he very quickly is like, you know, I get why this is considered higher, and it probably is. It's like the far end of the spectrum, but when I'm in this place, I can't love Kali. I can't have a dualistic experience with this deity, so I actually, on purpose, come back to, like, play. It's exactly what you're saying. He's like, even though he had seen to this far end of the spectrum, he preferred to come back and be able to have, he actually personally liked the love and devotion thing to a deity. So he was coming back or descending if we want to, you know, make it hierarchical. See, I actually would, I would make it hierarchical, but the other way. So I would say (laughs) that going to that place that seems to exclude those things and then including those things in that realization is higher progression rather than regression. Yeah, it's even beyond that, right? That's yeah. a good point. Right, so that no expression of manifestation could not be it. Um, well, you, you see you've I mean? really got my Hindu persona going uh, this evening. It reminds nice. me of the, the famous uh, line, Chintya Beta Beta Tattva. So the highest realization is both dual and non-dual at the same time, right? And so to say that the non-dual or the Dzogchen is the highest, actually it's only halfway there because then you include the dual with it. And that's even For everything you thought was dual. Yes. (laughs) Good stuff. One of the things that happens to me, you know, I'm a a coach. I work with a lot of people one-on-one to help them with their practice. And all of these fuckers read your book and then they ask me to explain your book. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> so I blame you. I get and, the same uh, thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you deserve it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this back on you and uh, ask you to explain a particular point or two. Sure. For, because I know people are interested, and I'm sure you've had to do this a thousand times, so hopefully you have some of these answers just sitting there in your bag of tricks. Which is why I naively imagined that the second edition would free me from all that, which is total foolishness <laughs> on my part. It's just going to make it worse. Yeah. It is going to make it worse. That's right. Um, here's what I'd love you to describe. I'd love you to describe deconstructing a sensory experience into a fruition experience. Okay, so I can backtrack from fruition, which is where reality disappears and reappears, 
in some way that is skillful and transformative rather than just, say, deep sleep or sedation. There's a way that reality can disappear and reappear that synchronizes and changes something in the brain, resets something, uh, produces wisdom, is transformative in some powerful way. So backtracking from that, that arises out of something called conformity knowledge. And conformity knowledge is at least one pulse, if not a few pulses, of a perfect understanding of reality, which just seems a pretentious thing to say, or I should just say a perfect understanding of sensate reality, regardless of any other ontology or philosophical points. So where the mind has recognized something about the intrinsic clarity of all phenomena and seen the true nature of that, which I will, from a Theravadan point of view, call the three characteristics. So you've seen something about its total impermanence, meaning the whole of space and all sensations arose and vanished a few times, or something about it not being you. So everything you thought was object suddenly totally collapses into subject, or through the suffering door where everything you were clinging to as you suddenly is torn away from anything that could seem to be you and it all disappears and reappears. So it's something that profoundly challenges the nature of a continuous separate self at a deep experiential level. And so, you know, stages 12, 13, 14 of the insight path change of lineage path and fruition, as they're called, those arise out of perfectly understanding sensate reality. And so what conformity knowledge then says is if we understand the three characteristics of individual objects well enough, our breath, our thoughts, our feelings, our body, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, anything that you could imagine as a sensate thing, if we do that long enough, we get more and more likely to come to conformity knowledge where the brain naturally takes all of sensate reality as objects simultaneously, whatever that may be. It might be a, the color white. If you've got very strong concentration, your whole world is dissolved into white. It might be the image of a tantric deity. It might just be your breath. It might just be the ordinary room you were walking through at the time. It might be anything. So it takes all of your experience as reality, shows you the three characteristics of it, and then you disappear and reappear. So given what conformity knowledge is and does, we can start building brick by brick as it were, the foundation for conformity knowledge to arise by noticing sensate objects. We notice our body, we notice our thoughts, we notice the breath, we notice space, we notice sounds, we notice these things and we work to perceive them coming and going. We notice the space around objects, we notice the attention, we notice the mechanics of attention, we notice our energy, we notice our intent to meditate, we notice the mental echo of phenomena so there's the image and then there's the mental picture of the image, there's the sound and there's the mental image of the sound. There is the intention to move the arm and the arm moving. There's the intention to move attention and attention moving. Each of these are components of experience that occurs. And so simply taking them in a methodical fashion or just taking one and getting really good at it such that that's, you know, becomes our whole reality or whatever path we choose, simply taking apart moment to moment very rapidly because reality presents rapidly. And so I emphasize that if you're really going to see the oscillation of everything you think is self and all everything you think is other, you got to be going at least 10, 20 times a second, which seems ridiculous until you realize that you can parse my speech and in one second I can say many words and you can hear the syllables and you can make sense of all that and you can even be thinking lots of thoughts while I'm saying it and experience the images of your body and your room and your head and your whatever device you're listening to this on and all of those things oscillating back and forth, making up a complete second. And if you get good enough at rapidly parsing all of that such that you eventually come to what I call a one-to-one parity, meaning that all of the sensations that arise are comprehended as intrinsically containing their own clear awareness of themselves, or you could say awareness 
perfectly comprehends each of the objects arising in it, however you want to get philosophical about that, then by doing that, you come to conformity knowledge, which is a perfect comprehension of a whole moment of experience with everything in that moment, all of space and all of body and mind and whatever is going on. And so conformity knowledge gives us the clues of what are the useful things that lead to awakening. And I will claim that any practices that help with that process are practices that can lead to building the blocks that eventually converge to in uh, conformity knowledge. Is that helpful? That is helpful. And at the same time, it's awesomely general, right? You covered a lot of different possibilities with a lot of different senses. Sure. So but reality does that, that. So you've got to get does. good at that. That's right. That's why I said awesomely. And yet, as a companion to that, I'd like to hear you describe it very specifically, like with a body sensation. So, you know, if I'm noticing Kenneth Folk style, oh, there's an itch in my butt. You know, right? there's, a, there's a sense <laughs> of laughter Kenneth, on my lips. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. So, or there's a, you know, the sense of a slight uh, sensation that my eyelashes might be slightly crossed or have a little bit of lint on them or something. Or there's, you know, the sound of your voice in my ears. Or there's the ticking numbers on the screen rapidly going by in the recording program that's recording this. So, you know, each of those things is arising and vanishing very rapidly and each of those things can become a fascinating thing to begin to explore once we realize, oh, wait, this is really cool. This is really interesting. Check out the sensate intricacy of this, the unbelievable fine details, the shimmering nature of all of these little blips and squawks that make up our reality, all these tingling pulses, all these little things. And we can begin to deconstruct each of those into their little tingling, sparkling, shuddering twitching, spasming, whatever parts. Um, <laughs> and we can do that for anything. So if I was going to notice the end of my fingertip, which has been one of my favorite meditation objects, just because we have a lot of nerves in our fingers and it's very easy to feel tingling there, I can feel many, many little tingles per second as the brain tunes into that and the hindrances are suppressed and the, the attention stabilizes. And and then as I notice the tingling in my fingers, I can notice, wait a second, there's other sensations too. And they seem to be, when the tingling of the fingers is not being noticed, all this framing stuff is there, right? There's the arms, there's the back, there's the head, there's the sense of my words coming out of my mouth. There's the colors of the screen and the microphone in front of me and the headphones on my head and, and the sense of the breath arising and falling and all those little tingles. And then if I even get better at it, I notice, wait a second, all those little tingles in my finger, when the attention's on one of those, it's like the others seem to sort of dip out or blip out, kind of like a ducker on an audio thing, or like they cause interference patterns in each other. And at a really fine level, when the attention is on my fingertip, it's not quite exactly in the same way on the words that I'm saying. And how in the world is it that this Daniel can somehow talk while most of Daniel's attention is on Daniel's finger? I have no idea. And form simultaneously be forming coherent sentences that are, you know, building towards some sort of didactic point while simultaneously noticing lots of little tingles and shimmers and the framing components of the body. And whoa, wait a second. And then that level of attention produces state shifts and insights. And you go, okay, whoa, that's cool. But if you notice that reality has this unbelievable richness to it, it's got this vibrancy, it's got this scintillating oscillation, it's got these fractal patterns of interference, like moyer patterns. Like if you take two screens right? And you put them over each other and you move one back and forth against the other. You can see all these fantastic patterns that arise, 
right? If you take like, you know, window screen and you put one on top of the other, all these interference patterns where they converge and diverge and patterns of light and darkness and it shimmers. And if you ripple one, it does really cool things. And if you twist it, it does other cool things. And that's what all sensations are like. So all these sensations interplay and interfere and tingle and twitch and oscillate back and forth. And as we start to dive into that oscillation and that scintillating brilliance, we can start to notice, oh, wait a second, at this outrageously fine level, some sensations seem to be me, right? These sensations over here I habitually notice as me, but if I investigate them, suddenly they're tingling. But wait, some other part of what I usually think of as me is now pretending its vantage point, but wait, that's tingling too. And wait, that's shimmering and that's disappearing and that's arising and fluxing and un unstable. But wait, what's this new vantage point I've taken to notice that, right? Some stable refuge of a spot in the back of my head or over my ear or my nose or the sensation of my eyeballs or, you know, back in the back of the palate of my mouth. Maybe that's me or my neck is me or the, you know, the hair on the back of my head is me. But wait, none of those things are vantage point. What, wait a second. And then you can notice that's oscillating too. And you can watch this fascinating dance we do as we continue to pretend that all these oscillating sensations are us, their self, they're stable, they're coherent, they're perceiving all the other little tingling patterns of experience, when in fact they're just more tingling patterns of experience. And as we draw more and more of that into our awareness in this rapid fire, scintillating, tingling, oscillating, destabilizing way that I advocate for people who just want to shred their reality, then we can start to actually really get into the fact that nope, none of this is a stable self. And the more we see that, the more likely we are to have it lock in in some permanent way in our brains and establish some new level of baseline of clarity into that. Yes, the authentic person with no place to stand. Yep. And it's interesting, while I talk about all this magical stuff, you know, I, I had gone through this strange path, right? So the way I finally did whatever it is I did, whatever you want to call it, you know, I had learned Vipassana and gotten some insights from that. And then I learned some other things. I learned some Mahayana stuff and I learned some Zen stuff and I learned some Taoist stuff and I learned some magical stuff and I kept doing Vipassana stuff and I learned some Jhana stuff and I learned all these things. But in the end, on the retreat, where I finally really got the joke, as Kenneth was calling it, I just went back to that. Six sense doors, three characteristics, but with a very high standard for I would not let anything get by. Anything. No thought, no intention, no memory, no sense of anything. Uh, get by without noticing it, flicker and change on its own if I possibly could. Dissolve and wink in and out. Right. The simple advice to finally go back to real Vipassana 101, six sense mm. doors, three characteristics, and just let it rip. You know, shred it down, tear it all to pieces, destabilize everything so there was no place to stand. That was the technique that I still consider the most profound thing I ever learned. Absolutely. My favorite stuff. Just even hearing you talk about it is awesome. Yeah, it makes my hair stand on end uh, sitting here just talking about it. Yes. So one of the interesting things that you're pointing to as a background here is having had all these different forms of training and presumably some level of attainment, if we can call it that, in many of these different forms of training. And you're in various ways at the center of a lot of Dharma discussions and practice discussions with a lot of people on your site, the Dharma Overground. So you're in kind of a unique position to have an eye on the lay of the land here. So I have a couple lay of the land questions for you in terms of American or let's say Western practice and practitioners and teachers and the scene 
And my first question, it's one I've been asking people lately, what's the thing that most teachers are just getting wrong? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, that's you a know, hard one. What's pissing you off the most about how they're teaching? Yeah. So, oh my golly. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of known for throwing lightning bolts, right? And then there's the question of like, how many do you need to throw before it finally feels so good to stop? That said, I, <laughs> so what do I think is hurting people? Because, you know, I don't care if people are getting it wrong necessarily or something wrong from whatever point of view, but if you're causing damage, that I think is trouble. And it's not like my stuff hasn't caused some damage because it sometimes does, right? So these high intensity practices yeah. are dangerous, right? You can hurt yourself. You know, you're radically restructuring or recoding the operating system as it is running that can cause bugs and crashes, just fair warning to anybody um, who's thinking about doing this stuff. It doesn't always go well in the short term or the long term. But not telling people that, I think, is point number one, right? So the number of people who are selling mindfulness, you know, mic mindfulness or, you know, whatever practices without saying, hey, by the way, this comes from a spiritual tradition that is designed to deconstruct your sense of reality and identity can lead to magical experiences and can lead to stages that can be profoundly destabilizing and challenging and sort of send you on the hero's journey to the underworld, as it were. You know, if you're teaching this stuff in somewhere, there's not some sense of risks and benefits and alternatives, right? So as a doctor, we like to discuss risks, benefits, and alternatives. Not that all of our patients necessarily understand all of the risks and benefits of alternatives of everything we do. We recognize that, but we try, right? From an ethical point of view, we try at least to sort of explain, you know, this could cause infection or, you know, we could hit a nerve or, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, you could drop your blood pressure when we do this or whatever thing, right? So we spend a lot of time and feel that it's an ethical thing to do to explain these things to our patients. In the same way, I really think that the meditation world should explain to people right up front, look, even in relatively small doses, you can get into real stages that can be destabilizing. And I think that the biggest problem I see with that is that like, if I cause trouble in my ER with a procedure or something, I have a lot of backup. I have anesthesiologists, I have surgeons, I have cardiologists, I have an ICU, I've got critical care nurses all around me, I've got a lot of cool equipment and toys and tricks and things, right? So we know the major side effects of the things we do, and we have a lot of capabilities to help deal with that, and we keep those things right on hand, right? And we know if we get into trouble that's beyond what we can do, we know who to call, right? So we know who to you call for backup. what. We have backup, right? And so we're doing this stuff. And, you know, like the little ERs, little ERs out there that don't have the capabilities that I have in, in my big ER, they know when they get a patient that's too sick for them, they know to stabilize and ship. And we are happy to take it and they are happy to send it. Um, yeah. So, right, so that's how the trauma system works. We're a heart center, we're a stroke center, we're a trauma center. So we get all this stuff sent to us. And the little hospitals on the other end are very happy to send it. So they know what can go wrong and they know how to recognize it. And they understand that there is a hierarchy of care. In the same way with the world of meditation, we have not developed that in the same kind of way. Plenty of people don't acknowledge the dark stages or they imagine that they're only something people could get into high doses of meditation, not realizing that some people get into these in daily life just through ordinary experiences without even having meditated and then come to them already in this stuff, right? Much less yeah. it might, it can sometimes be precipitated by doses of meditation that I previously would have considered basically homeopathic, not to rag on homeopathy or get into some discussion of homeopathy, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Very small doses is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, the point is that I think the meditation world needs to grow up and adopt a more medical model. We talked about this on the retreat, but I still think this is the biggest thing I see 
like, you know, the MBSR kids are starting to sort of get, oh, wait a second, sometimes this can get people into real experiences. Maybe we should know something about those, right? And then, you know, hopefully the world of yoga will start to get this. But I really think the stages of meditation and some of the meditation side effects that they can produce, like weird muscle spasms and, you know, bizarre energetic things and insomnia and strange visions and all the weird mood instability and senses of derealization and depersonalization and all the stuff that arises when people can do the stuff that are well described by myself and plenty of my meditative co-adventurers on this process. Like we've all been through these strange things, most of us. Yeah. And somehow we were okay, but not everybody is, right? Somehow we were lucky enough to have support or enough ego strength in the classic psychological sense or just enough dumb luck or something to get through it. But that's not true for everyone. And so I think having a referral system, right, and having an acknowledgement of the various stages and levels of this thing be like written into the textbooks of meditation, written into the textbooks of psychiatry and psychology, written into the textbooks of junior high school health classes. Maybe, you know, maybe that's too much, but seriously, like, I mean, teenagers get into this stuff. I know people who got into this stuff when they were kids, right, you know, young kids. So it happens. Sometimes just naturally, spontaneously, people get into weird territory. And something that can normalize that, that can address it, that can name it, that can give that kind of power that a name gives, that can allow people to know who to refer to and to have it all be above board and straightforward. It's just part of attentional development. If I could contribute one little part of that to this world, I would feel like I'd done something good because I think that really needs to happen. And I wish it was taught in medical school and counselors receive training in this because otherwise there are all these people who are having these experiences that they don't have a place to go. And I get a reasonable number of those emails and calls and so do my friends who talk about the dark side of meditation. And we struggle to try to figure out where to send them, particularly if they're at some far distance from us, which most of them are. Do you have a go-to resource that you would recommend uh, live on the show here? So I refer people to my friends who have dual training. And by dual training, I mean they are professionally certified in psychology or psychiatry, right? So they're licensed people or counseling, right? They're licensed people who have that training, right? I leave this to the professionals when I can, right? Yes. I acknowledge that, you know, even though I'm an ER doctor and I've been teaching meditation, I understand something of the dark side of meditation, right? It's not really my licensing or training. So I call me all professional and formal about it. But I have a few friends who have both, right? So they're they're deep meditators and they have those certifications and degrees because in our culture and society, there's something to be said for that. And they also, because of that, can, you know, do it in a way that legally makes some kind of sense, right? Because, you know, we're a litigious country and, and also they have access to medications and or people who do, and they've got, you know, all the stuff that can sometimes go with that, right? Because sometimes you need more, right? Sometimes just saying, oh, this is a dark night stage and here's a practice you can do is not enough, right? Sometimes people need more help. They're in real trouble and they need that. So I don't want to give all their names out on the air because none of them have the capacity to accept some kind of large influx of questions or whatever, nor do I, right? So that's the problem, right? So the system is too small. You know, I've got five, maybe, yeah, about five of these people, that's not enough for all the stuff I get. You know, so I try to refer people back to a mix of local meditation teachers who know something and or meditation teachers who know something plus local counseling or whatever mix of appropriate specialization I can come up with. And that often is putting together two people, which is unfortunate because it's a lot easier when it's all under one, you know, in one head. So it's just completely powerful and fascinating to me when I asked Shinzen this just a little while ago. He had almost literally exactly the same critique that we need to have full disclosure about the possibilities, even if they're low percentage, 
Most people probably have a pretty good experience and get all the positive benefit. But full disclosure about the fact that it's not all sweetness and light and that there are potential pitfalls or at least difficult places people can run into and that we need to be more upfront about that. In the modern mindfulness movement in America or the West, there's often a sense that it's just all good and that no bad could ever come from it. Yeah, that's naive beyond reason. I mean, like, seriously. like It's dangerously naive, just as it would be to say, yeah, everything about weightlifting is only good. Right. You're never going to get injured. There's no possibility you could hurt yourself. Well, you know. Obviously, that's bullshit. You can hurt yourself in various ways, and that doesn't mean weightlifting is somehow broken. It's just part of the game that it has some failure modes, and we just need to be clear about those. Hey, don't drop the weight on your foot. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Same thing with mindfulness, right? Or blow your back out or tear your shoulder or whatever it is. Overtrain or hurt your joints, all that sort of stuff. Right. And so we just need to know about that and be clear about it with people. Or even if you don't drop the weight on your foot or you train properly or you have proper technique, you can still blow out something and hurt yourself. And that's That's true of meditation as well. So even if you're doing everything quote unquote right, that doesn't mean it's going to work. And for those situations, and again, Shinzen said exactly the same thing and even called it the medical model, we need to have experts to refer to, to help people who injure themselves in some way. Yeah, or even the acknowledgement. I would just like the acknowledgement of so many of the people who teach this stuff. There's this vast world out there that they may know nothing about, that it's just a matter of time before some student of theirs is going to exceed their abilities and their experiences. One of the reasons for training in the weird stuff is you're vastly more able to reach those people who also run into the weird stuff through whatever means. Because some people just run into the weird stuff just because that's what they're really good at or natural for, right? They may run into that stuff early. It may not be a late thing where they finally, you know, develop all this powerful concentration. They just made it maybe a natural, right? So yeah, I started out with all the weird stuff and ended up at Vipassana. You there know, you go. But uh, have yeah. a, long, a huge background in all the strange and difficult stuff. Yeah. So tends to be a little more understandable when you've been there to some degree. So we've emphasized a very important aspect of practice in the West and our cultural understanding of the, or misunderstanding of the promises and pitfalls of this. And so to, let's say, balance that, I'm curious what you see that's very hopeful about all the scene currently. So what's hopeful is the internet. I mean, the internet changed the Dharma universe. The internet will probably be as profound for the Dharma as Nalanda was, if not more so because the degree of cross-pollination of traditions and people finding each other and experimenting and sharing and playing around is unprecedented. I mean, there's never been anything like this kind of communication tool on the earth that we know of. And so the internet, for all its you know horror and absurdity um, and grotesqueness sometimes, <laughs> is creating communities of amazing people that are helping each other in open and straightforward uh, ways that are beyond anything that has existed in a very long time, if ever. I mean, and the spirit of it, to me, harkens back to the originals of, you know, these real brain hackers back in the day, just sitting around and going for it and sharing their experiments and figuring this stuff out. And that, to me, is just absolutely awesome. And that spirit of, let's just do this thing and figure out how to help each other to do it and to do it better and collaboration is just so wonderful to see. That's what brings real joy to my heart. And the friendship and fellowship and 
sisterhood and brotherhood that comes from that is remarkable. And it gives lots of people an opportunity to share their wisdom and to gain feedback in a way that I think is really healthy. You know, one teacher, one student, you can run into a lot of shadow sides in a way that when you have a whole community helping to keep you on track and you get to see all these perspectives, it's not like all of the perspectives are useful, but something in the collective openness of it does tend to normalize in a way that it's harder for things to run off the rails. And it keeps things above board and there's a record. And that so far seems to create a lower amount of trouble. Not that there still isn't trouble anywhere you find people, but there's something really great about that. Yeah, the openness and community and above-boardness of it all is very, very inspiring. And I agree yeah. it's helping to rid the practices of a lot of the shadow side. Yeah, not that there aren't shadow sides. There still are, but it's better. Well, there's so many more things I'd like to talk to you about. I hope that we can do some more of these sessions together. But for now, I think we should let you go to sleep. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you. This has been an extremely enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate the work you're doing and the attempt to get the message out there farther and wider. So great work. Keep it up, man. Thank you. I appreciate it, Daniel. And everyone, don't forget the new edition of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha oh. by the Arhat Daniel Ingram. And my other book, or I should say a book with Shannon Stein, so she's first author, called The Fire Casino, will also be coming out hopefully not that long from now. So Wait that's, a minute, you wrote a book with Shannon? Do you not know this? I did not know this. <laughs> well, so here's the story. So I did my <laughs> retreat, and then I had led Shannon on one retreat previously. That was the Vipassana retreat, noting and all that kind of stuff, straight up Vipassana. I led her on it. It was remote leading. So she was up in her cabin in Nowheresville, Canada, wherever that is. And I was down here. And so I <laughs> talked to her 20, 30 minutes a day or whatever, usually on my drive into work and try to lend her some support for that practice. And then later on, she said, well, that was fun. I'd like to do another retreat like that with you. And I'd like to do it on the fire casino. And I said, okay. So she did about four weeks or so of fire casino practice up there. And she was just a delight to work with because she's so sane and grounded and just almost no issues come up beyond just issues with the practice. There's like no projection, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's there's amazing. no blame. There's, it's like, wow, this is like, <laughs> so it's like a dream to be a part of a practice of somebody like that. And she said, well, can I give you anything as Donna for this? And I said, no, but sort of. And I said, if you would be so kind as to write down your experiences, what was important and the experiences you thought were important each day. And if I say something useful that you think would be of benefit to somebody else, would you please write that down too? Because I can't remember this stuff sometimes. And she said, sure. So she kept a record of the retreat and then that just became the book very naturally. And so this book is called The Fire Casino. The Fire Casino. Truly delightful person to work with. Taught me many things by working with her. So, And that'll be coming out on Heptarchia, which is an obscure little magical press. And when will that occur? I do not know. We're in final editing stages. And then shortly thereafter, there will be some sort of free online version. And the book we're going to print at cost, so none of us are going to make anything off of this. But it'll be on-demand printed book. It's such a weird little niche of people who'd be interested in that kind of thing. <laughs> you know. Um, but she uh, went quite deep and got a lot of cool practice tips and things I think will be of use to people. Yeah, Shannon Stein is someone I'm hoping to have as a guest on the show. You really well should. In the near future, yeah. All right, Daniel, thank you so much. Have a great evening. All right, bye.
that's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>